Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Choose Inclusion for the Black Voices Matter series. Uh, Mike is not here with us today, but I'm here with my co-host, Yubi. Yubi, how's it going? It's good. Hi, everybody. Thanks for, thanks for jumping back in. So uh, we have a special guest today that I'm excited to introduce to everyone. Um, Lena Hellamerium is an organizational and leadership coach at Stand Up LLC, which is a woman-owned business based here in Denver. Uh, Lena, thank you for joining us today. Uh, our first question always is to check in with you. How are, how are you doing? Oh, I am pretty great. I am currently out of town on vacation and feeling quite lovely. So I was wondering if you could just tell us, um, start off by just telling us a little bit of background on yourself. How did you kind of get to this place of doing organizational and leadership coaching? Um, you know, it's funny because I, I always tell people I took the long scenic route. I started off my life doing uh, exactly as I was told, which was go to school, get good grades, get a good uh, get a degree, get a good job, work your way up in the job, and then retire. And I couldn't seem to keep a job. I don't know. I, every year I got bored and I would go and get another job and became the family joke of like, what job are you at now? Or what number do you have now? <laughs> so uh, over time, I just, I couldn't fit. I didn't fit you know, every place that I was, I didn't fit with corporate. I didn't fit with sales. Something was missing, even though I was good at all those things. And um, I kind of accidentally ended up in ministry for like six years. And there I will say, I found my calling. It was, you know, people and helping people and growing people and leadership and learning how to lead and all of that. And then I just, that's where I ran into StrengthsFinder I got certified and the rest is history. I haven't looked back. So, I mean, I think what's interesting about the perspective you're bringing is that you, with this organizational and leadership coaching, you're, you are focusing a lot on individual people, you know, for regards to the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that's been happening over the last two months, you know, there's been a lot of conversations on our podcast about the external factors that have impacted the Black community. And I think you bring a really interesting perspective about the internal factors. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, I hear, um, I hear a lot of conversation about what's wrong out there. It's kind of, you know, if you could see me, I'd be finger pointing away from my body, right? So what's the problem out there? Who's to blame? Um, who's to fix this? And while I have no problems with having that conversation, uh, because there's plenty of blame to go around <laughs> out there, uh, I also feel that it's actually more productive and wise to spend time on the what's wrong in here conversation, where, you know, I identify as uh, a Black woman. And so the community that I'm most closely, I, uh, identify with and call my own is the Black community. And so I feel like my community could deeply benefit from some reflection and um, internalization, some introspection to see, well, well, what is our contribution to the mess that we're in? Yeah, so can you, can you dive into that a little bit? Like, what do you mean by 
the our contribution when you we were specifically talking about the black community correct when you say our contribution yeah i um we can have the conversation all day about you know reparations and 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 the government right and even the current political system and just all kinds of wrongs and the structural racism. It's, it is 100% all there and all true, right? We can have that conversation on another day. Um, but all of that is dependent on external forces. And so, for example, the first place to look is this conversation around slave mentality. And I think Black people have the conversation, we have it within ourselves, right? Um, but I, I'm, I feel like it's something that we are not willing to have out loud almost. It's it's really private, you know, when I'm in my living room or when I'm hanging out with my girlfriends or, you know, it comes up suddenly, but we're not really making a strategy. How do we eradicate the slave mentality that is binding us from moving forward collectively? I mean, when you think about slavery, slavery, the whole, like one of the first things that, that happened to us is that we lost our religion, right? So, so we come here, uh, let's just say that, you know, there's lots of people that came here from different places, but let's just focus on West Africa, right? So West Africa comes here, they port at, you know, probably, I don't know, South Carolina or somewhere, that's one of the bigger ports. And all of these, um, you know, people who don't speak English come off the boat. And the first thing that we do, of course, is go to our faith. When something that traumatic and that unexplainable happens to you, you go to your faith. And the first thing that was taken away from us was our faith, which was you're not allowed to practice those things. Here, let me teach you how to worship this this white man and be um, docile. And um, we're gonna call that being, I don't know, meek, you know, um, just accepting things, don't, don't fight, just be passive. And listen, there is, there's nothing wrong with Christianity. Just, I'm saying that that's not what we came here with. <laughs> we were doing fine all by ourselves in Africa with our own uh, religions and, you know, Orishas and, and all kinds of whatever we were practicing, right? And then we come here and that's the first thing that's robbed of us. Can you imagine a person without faith? What are their chances? The next thing that was taken from us is trust. So in the United States, there's this individualistic culture, right? I get ahead um, however I can, you are my competition. But this idea of linking arms and, and working together and moving forward as a group or as a community, that's what we call a village mentality, right? Or a communal network, a communal customs and cultures. That's what we had in West Africa. That also was taken away because it didn't make sense. See, listen, the white uh, slave masters, the white man back then was totally outnumbered by these slaves. And so the first thing you had to do was strip their mental ability to think that they could win. You, the one thing that you were scared of was definitely a revolt. And I'm sure no one really, well, you know, no one with common sense would, would dispute that fact. And so the first thing you have to do is disband our trust in one another pit us against one another. Do things that when one person succeeds, the other person is punished. That strips away at that glue that we had as a community. I mean, little, those are just two examples. 
Well, how do you think the well, the trust has actually played out over the last couple hundred years, and how are you seeing that being played out today? Mm. Um, it it is much more challenging for Black people to work together to get a thing done. There are a lot of trust issues within the community and it goes right back to that, you know? So, so for example, there's, there's an ongoing kind of um, understanding in the black community that if I were to tell you, let's say uh, Nina, I were to come up to you and say, um, hey, let me tell you about, you know, this business that I'm doing or this opportunity that I'm getting into or this, this place that I'm moving to that's awesome. And I want to tell you about it and share it with you because I've done it and it's working for me. Like I'm moving forward or I'm benefiting somehow from this thing or this neighborhood that I've moved into. And so I want to tell you about it. You'll have that conversation with me. But if a white person comes and tells you, tells you the same thing, if you're a black person, that conversation you are more open to. And I think a lot of black people that may cause some feelings for people that are listening to this, but it doesn't mean it's not true just because it doesn't feel good to admit it. Well, you know, it's interesting. We were having a conversation very similar to this in regards to, um, you know, like messaging within communities mm -hmm. and an organization that we were working with you know, that they, they were trying to move the needle on um, really representing um, the, the people in that community. But what they found from that community, and I think it was people of color community or, or black and Hispanic communities, those, those people actually wanted to see the message come from a white person. And, and so this conversation that we're having right now, and what I'm hearing you say is really fascinating because it, it does, it goes all the way back to what happened when slaves were brought to America and, and sort of this conditioning to where almost like, well, the white man or the white person is, is our savior. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so to your point, like, is that, uh, I don't, I feel like that's a big, obstacle to to the black community or to any marginalized groups sort of being able to band together and help themselves or or you know stop relying or stop believing that they're not good enough absolutely absolutely it's um it's not a secret i just think people aren't talking about it you know, um, and again, because it doesn't yeah. feel good. It, who wants to admit that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's, and, and well, it's like, it, it's the same thing with this conversation, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and the white community not wanting to have the conversation that, hey, we did this, like, mm -hmm. this is on us. I mean, it's that same bias against that, right? Uh, but it, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's just fascinating because they they didn't do that to themselves right like somebody else did but now that you know hundreds of years later they've they've adopted that mindset and they've continued on in that way to think that way yeah you know i was just having a conversation with my daughter about doing something something that i'm supposed to be doing and i said 
you know, it's just, it's amazing how ingrained this mentality is because I haven't done the thing. It's two more days until the deadline and I haven't done the thing. And if I would just make this move and do this one thing, then I'd be that much closer to like meeting the deadline and, and possibly winning and, and, you know, getting what I really want for myself, but it's big, it's big. And so when I actually started to talk with her is when I realized what those thoughts are is, you know what, you're probably not gonna win anyway. You know what, I bet a hundred other people have their same idea. You know what, all that time that you spend on that, you could be doing something else, something that you know is foolproof. And when I can name those things out loud, then I get my power back. But when I pretend that they're not there, that's what gives them power. And oh, that's, that's so what, interesting. I no, just, go ahead, Lana. Well, I just wish that we would talk about it more. Like it, you know, I think in general, people are like, oh yeah, growth is uncomfortable. You're supposed to have growing pains and getting things that are worth having is difficult. Like we say the things, but we're not living them out. We're not really pushing this envelope because it's easier to look outward and blame whatever is not happening than looking inward and taking ownership and responsibility for our own contribution. We're the only ones that can change that mentality, period. And like white people who say racism is not a thing, when you say it's not a thing, then you don't have to talk about it and it never changes. Uh, that's a that's a great segue into kind of this other thing that we want to talk about is that, you know, Black Lives Matter, everyone's been talking about that for the last two months and there's this immediate backlash response with Blue Lives Matter and All Lives Matter. Kind of was hoping you can talk about that, your thoughts about it and your experiences with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mentioned that I'm on vacation right now. So I'm um, in, uh, what is it, Moab, Utah. And in Moab, Utah, I have seen so many um, signs for All Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, Trump signs. Um, I've, I've not, of course, seen a single Black Lives Matter sign. That's okay, we're gonna work on that. But um, it just got me to thinking, right? So here's the thing. When any organization, group, anybody makes a statement or has a tagline or creates a movement or an ad campaign is to bring awareness to something that people aren't already aware of. And so for me saying all lives matter, I have feelings about that, which is it's not necessary. No one disagrees with that statement. Literally no one, you, you know? I mean, people <laughs> may like, I don't know, I could see like a homeless person maybe feeling like my life doesn't matter. Do you know what I mean? Or something like that. Yeah, but yeah. I think generally speaking, we all agree that all lives matter. And that is the problem with that movement. It's, it's not a thing that needs awareness brought to it. Now, when it comes to blue lives matter and black lives matter, that I can get behind because I think they both matter. And the key here is, that they both have felt undervalued. They're both being targeted in different ways. So you start with, okay, so there's um, police uh, misconduct and abuse and, and total misuse of power that causes black lives to be um, targeted and lost at a much higher rate 
than any other group in this country. Oh, well then you bring awareness and you say, hey, hey, hey guys, turn your heads, Black Lives Matter. Now, when you do that and you say the reason is, is you know, the police targeting, now you got this shift in energy about how people feel about the police. And so now the police are being targeted and they're being blamed as a unit, as an entire group. And so, yeah, it's okay to also think blue lives matter because now we got to shift this narrative from the police are blanket good. They protect everyone, right? Because uh, that's what people wanted to believe before all of this happened. And then now people have almost gone the complete opposite direction. The pendulum has swung completely the other way, right? And so now people are like, oh, well, the police are horrible. They're awful. They're not doing their jobs. They don't deserve any money or anything. Well, that's also not true. And so there's, a, there's an opportunity to say, okay, blue lives matter. Now, I think that if we address the black lives matter, that we wouldn't have the blue lives matter issue. But I'm not going to say that blue lives don't matter to me because we have blue lives in, you know, that are all races. Now, here's another argument. I was talking with a girlfriend at the pool the other day and she said, well, here's the thing. They chose to be blue. We didn't choose to be black. So therefore their movement is not real because it's not a fair comparison. And I can get behind that as well. There, uh, yeah, man, my head's spinning. Because, <laughs> I mean, it, it, well, and it's just, I do, I do sympathize um, with Uh-oh. Did he we lost you for a second. We heard you say we do sympathize, but then you cut out. He might have totally cut out. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll go ahead and uh, fill in the air for UB. But I mean, I think that's a perspective I haven't heard before. That I'll be honest, like, I, I think I agree with your friend at the pool side that, you know, with blue lives, you choose into that, with black lives, you don't. Um, but at the same time, blue lives also just seemed like such a, like a reactionary response to the bigger systemic issues that were happening. Um, but I, I appreciate the perspective you're bringing onto this as well. I think it's really important for us to show compassion and empathy um, to, to all people um, in all ways. Well, I mean, to your point, it's a reactionary response. I, I don't disagree with that. It's 100% reactionary, right? Uh, okay, so it's like when you're in an argument with your loved one, and you say, hey, you didn't put the dishes away. And that person goes, well, you didn't put them away yesterday. That's essentially what Blue Lives Matter is. Well, because you came for me, I'm gonna come for you. And, and that's not a productive way to enter into that conversation. What would be productive in that instance of the dishes would be, hey, you didn't put your dishes away. Oh my gosh, thank you for bringing that to my attention. Um, can you grab it for me since you're standing there? Or, oh, let me come get my dishes. And then after I've owned my part, then I say, just want to remind you that um, because I know the dishes, putting them away is important to you, that you left yours out yesterday and I just put them away. But I'm thinking maybe I could bring them up now because I know that's something that's important to you. Now that's a constructive way to have a conversation. Like, and so Absolutely. because people are saying Black Lives Matter, maybe, 
the Blue Lives Matter team could say, you know what, tell us more about that. And then once you have the conversation happening, then you can get the empathy going on both sides. But if no one feels heard, there is no space for a conversation. That is so true. And I think with like social media these days, it just kind of feels like everyone's screaming at each other and not really taking a step back to listen to one another. It's very true. Um, there's a lot of defensiveness and anger. I would say those are probably the dominant emotions that I've noticed, um, you know, regarding this, this whole racial climate that we're in right now, just anger and then defensiveness. And neither is constructive toward forward movement where everyone can feel a part of something. Neither one of those has a place at the table. Can you, get, can you yeah, both so hear me? I'm back. Now we can hear you, Yubi. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. <laughs> I won't go back to what I was gonna say earlier, but I, what I, um, yeah, I think, and this goes back to, I think the original uh, start of uh, the conversation around the, the internal factors of, you know, everybody has to start by internally reflecting, I think, right? And on all of this stuff for them in order for us to get to a point where then now we can have constructive conversations with each other. Would you agree I, with that? I mean, does that kind of tie it? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, as, as a coach, like no one understands what coaches do. Let's just say that and name it, right? Um, no, no one... I think people think they do, but they don't. And, and what I tell people is, you know, I'm not a consultant and I'm not a therapist, I'm a coach. And what a coach does is we help you move from wherever you are to wherever you want to be. It is completely driven by the client. If they are unwilling to move, then we don't move. My job is not to pull you. My job is to give you traction, you know, in wherever you're going. Uh, and it's an amazing process. But the point is, if you're not willing to see yourself as you are, then you will not be able to overcome the barriers that are keeping you where you are. So it's a push and a pull, right, between myself and the client. And that works in today's conversation as well. Black people have a lot on the line right now. You know, um, honestly, it, it's racism has never really gone away. And it, it fascinates me that people like, you know, think that it's, it's over because slavery ended what, 1860s, technically on paper, but Jim Crow didn't end until a hundred years later. And that's the 1960s. My own grandmother was born and was an adult around the time Jim Crow ended. My grandmother, like not my, Great, 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 no, my actual grandmother was like in her 20s around the time that Jim Crow ended. So we keep acting like it's so far away and it's just not, it's just not. I mean, if you're looking at what it's gonna take to move this conversation forward, yes, the other side, it would be great, uh, white people, for you to be able to just own what your ancestors did. Just own it and own how what they did still is very much alive today and impacting the lives of, of other people who are not you in a way that you can never understand, you may never see, and you may never experience. If you can do that, 
then you don't have to feel defensive. You don't have to feel bad or guilty. I think that the understanding the history of everything is just so important for the conversation we're having right now, right? And I think that um, one of the questions I was, uh, that we kind of talked about a little bit was the, the role of Christianity um, in the black community um, and how that, how, that, how that intersects with the slave mentality. I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. What role has Christianity played in this and um, everything that we're seeing today? Yeah, um, you know, the, so slaves, by the time that slavery ended, I don't know, I don't know any actual percentages, but I, I'm sure it has to be in the 90s, 90%, I would guess, wild guess, of slaves that were then freed would consider themselves to be Christians, were, were worshiping Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Um, the church was a pivotal even I would say not even place, but like reason why we were able to survive for so long, right? Uh, your faith and your spirituality, um, the health of your soul is so key, particularly when you're enduring trauma over and over and over and over <laughs> generations for generations. That's, and the key, the church was also key because that's where we would have secret meetings. You know, that's the place where we were allowed to go and uh, white people didn't feel, uh, what's the word, um, threatened because we were, you know, just worshiping God. So, and so we would use that time to actually plot and plan and, and, and learn and, I don't know, secretly learn how to read. The church that I grew up in, in Washington, D.C., um, Shiloh Baptist, was a place where they would secretly teach um, people how to read, Black people would go there and pretend like they're going to church or Bible study and learn how to read. So the church is key, was key. To, it's key to the Black community even now. Um, it is also the Achilles heel, I think, of the Black community. You know, for example, when, when a Black person meets another Black person, I think we just inherently assume that that person's Christian. It's just assumed. That's how deep, <laughs> that's how deep it is. You're either Christian or the small, tiny percentage that's Muslim, right? Um, and so it's, it's uh, unusual for a black person to even have a conversation with me, you know, where I, I don't, I don't identify as a Christian. It doesn't mean I don't have faith. It doesn't even mean I don't believe in Jesus Christ, you know, but we don't even engage in those conversations. Soon as I know you're not Christian, I don't engage with you, or I'm just going to pray for you, or now I'm trying to save you. You know, it's not, it's not the same. I mean, we hold this Christianity to such a high bar. It, it directs everything we do. And it fascinates me because how can we be Christians and then also treat people differently who aren't Christians, particularly black Christians who know what it feels like to be treated differently. I am wondering if the black community could stand to grow in its attitude and consciousness around Christianity. We are so deeply tied to this thing that wasn't even what we chose. It was forced on us during a time when we had no choice. And now we still act like there's no choice. 
Also, what's the connection? Think about it between teaching someone to, you know, what's the word, uh, turn the other cheek and um, just be faithful and even see craziness in front of you, but just keep moving. I mean, there, there was, it was a, I mean, it was brilliant. It was a brilliant strategy on the part of the white man to disassemble us in a way like brainwash. It sounds harsh, but that's exactly what happened. You remove that person's name, you renamed us. You took away our faith, you gave us a new faith. You took away our language, you taught us a new language. You took away our desire to leave. I mean, at some point in slavery, there was a majority of the population who had accepted this. This is it for me. This is where I belong in life. And the white man is just smarter than me or better than me. This is where I'm supposed to be. I mean, to take people who were thriving and to, to dismantle them and put them back together in this way is a brilliant strategy. And that is why we're still where we are hundreds of years later. And that is um, an amazing mic drop point because that, I mean, and that's a whole other discussion too, but I think religion in general, mm. you know, we, we've, hold, we've held on for thousands of years to a concept that to your point was truly used for control of mass groups of people. And what better way to control them than by getting them to be fearful of the same thing that we can't define, right? Um, and so, man, it's a fascinating fascinating um thing to look at and, and you're right there's so many things that i think as as america as a country that we have to look at reevaluate and dismantle and rebuild to move forward um so, so wow thank you have a whole, we have to have a whole thing on just religion one day yes um, that, yes and it can oh, be absolutely I got a name for it. How can something so inclusive be so exclusive? <laughs> All oh, day long. yes. Let's do it. <laughs> Please. I'm excited about that. Yes. Yeah, because I, I yes. definitely have a lot of, uh, like, so I come from a very small community in India, and um, our written language was wiped out by the Catholic Portuguese, specifically mm -hmm. as a way to divide and conquer and control us. And um, it worked. <laughs> Yeah. Um, because uh, a good portion of the community, my ancestors fled into the forest to continue practicing Hinduism and the ones who stayed on the coast uh, converted. Um, but it was, you know, Christianity has its, its fingers in a lot of elements of divide and conquer and power control, especially on communities of color. Um, and then I think there's, yeah, there's so much we can dive into, into this about. Absolutely. Yeah. So audience, stay tuned for that episode sometime soon, because that's going to be uh, a really powerful conversation. But this, uh, Lana, thank you for this conversation too. Uh, you know, we just listening to you and, and you know, I, I think turning the conversation internally to people is, is sort of that next big step that where all of this work needs to happen. You know, I think it needs to start with all of us. So thank you so much for, for your time today, for honoring us um, and trusting us with, with your voice. 
Thank you. I appreciate you all being focused on elevating Black voices, um, especially lately, and also keeping in mind to your audience that the conversation, if the conversation always feels good, then you're likely not being challenged in your thinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's Definitely. great. Yeah. Yep. Well, thank challenge you again, Lana. Other. Yeah, thank and you. Thank you to our audience and we'll catch you next time. Bye everybody.